verses 1 to 16 on page 1136. Paul writes from prison to the Christians living in Ephesus and he wants them to see who they are in Christ. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he, Jesus, who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament and grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Well, now as we turn to God's word, can I ask you just to bow your heads in prayer and we're going to ask God's spirit to speak to us and that he will keep Satan at bay because what Satan wants is that we don't listen. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for fellowship, for this time now to study it together. We pray that your spirit would give us um, clear thoughts as we listen And give us the desire to be obedient so that Jesus will be honoured. We ask in his name. Amen. You know, I've got to say that I I actually really do love church. I love it. And I love being here with you today. And I count it as a privilege uh, that that Matt's given me this opportunity uh, and that we're here together. So I just want to say thank you uh, for that. Um, Sarah asked those questions. I thought of another one, but I didn't give it to her uh, because I wanted to use it myself. But one of the things that I sometimes do is I reflect upon God's grace to me over the years. And I think of those people that he used to bring me to faith and to keep me in it. Uh, And so um, I think a question I could give to you is, well, think for a moment... Who has had a significant part in your life to bring you to the stage of Christian faith, preparedness to trust Jesus, 
that you're at today. Just spend a moment thinking about them and thanking God for them. There are a number of significant people. They won't be significant to you, but they are to me. But there is one who is significant and probably you will know the name. And I'm thinking particularly uh, of John Stott. John Stott, the late Dr John Stott, was for 40 years the rector of All Souls Langer Place in London. But he had a huge ministry around the world. He actually made it to the front cover of Time magazine one year as one of the most influential people in the world at large at that day. He came to Australia in something like 10 times. And in the 60s, when my wife and I were kids, young teenagers, we used to go to summer school, as I'm sure some of you have. And in that period, there were a number of times he spoke at summer school. He spoke on the passage that I'm going to share with you in a minute. But I think he had such an impact on me and of our generation and to so many others. John Chapman said that when he first heard him preach, he went home and tore up all his sermons and said he was going to start again, expounding the word of God, passage by passage, applying it, illustrating it, make it live. He had a huge impact. His careful and clear handling of scripture shaped the young Christian lives of many of my generation and later for me it helped me frame and shape my own approach to parish ministry and I share this experience with you. Jenny and I recently were in Europe uh, having a, a brief holiday. We ended with 10 days in Wales and uh, we're in the bottom of South Wales the eastern side of it and I remembered of course that John Stott had built a retreat uh, house on the far side of South Wales and we drove for four hours to get there. I find it emotional. We actually found the, the headstone where his ashes are buried and we audibly just held each other's hand and we thanked God for his ministry to us and to our generation. And I went back to thinking of the series he did on the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. In uh, 1969, which, by the way, was the year that I was ordained, John Stott published a little book called One People. It was really his view of the church, a series of sermons he preached at All Souls. And in that book, One People, he argued that there is only one laity, one laos, one people of God. He argued that the role of the parish minister is to help the church to be the church, to be the people of God, to be his ministers, whatever their profession or occupation. He wanted them to see 
that God had called them to ministry. I get irritated when I hear clergy talk about, oh, he's gone into ministry. Because uh, ministry is not just for those who wear their collars back to front. Stott said there was only one people of God and the role of the parish minister was to be, my take on it is, to be the player coach, playing with the church, getting his hands dirty and also coaching the church to be ministers of the living God. So to teach, so to encourage that under God, the people of God are equipped to exercise their ministries for the well-being of the whole people of God, to be more than just pew warmers. And I remember he included a little poem that I think he said had come to his attention because it had been written by children in the family of one of his clergy colleagues on the theme of pew warmers. The rector is late. He's forgotten the date. So what will the faithful do now, poor things? They'll sit in a pew with nothing to do and sing a collection of hymns, poor things. Well, the people of God are not meant to be pew warmers. They are called to be salt and light in the world in which God has placed them. It's the teaching of Scripture and it's, it's the one that uh, I was going to say David, but it's Matt, um, just read from in Ephesians 4. I don't want to go through it as, as we've heard it read already, but the resurrected, Paul is writing to the church and he's wanting the church, the church at Ephesus and the surrounding area, to be genuine communities of fellow believers gathered around Jesus. And he reminds them, that the resurrected and ascended Jesus showered his gifts upon the church. And you, you heard what he said. He said, Christ himself, in verse 11, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. A hobby horse for a moment. The pastors and teachers. You know, it's one gift. He's not saying the pastors and the teachers, the pastor and the teacher. But my experience, truthfully, has been that I, I cannot teach people effectively the word of God without knowing and loving them. I won't ever do it pastorally otherwise. Ah, and I can't faithfully pastor if I'm not also sharing the word of God. So in driving, in, in, in getting our generation to get rid of the division between clergy and laity, he was also wanting to say to us, was Stott, remember what Paul said. You are to be pastors and teachers. Why? So that the saints, the body of Christ, may be built up to equip, he says in verse 12, to equip God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up 
until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now those verses are pivotal to what Paul's saying. The equipping of the saints, the people of God, for their ministry is what leads to the church being stable and solid and mature in Christ. It's not because we have a gifted, strong rector, but because we are all being encouraged by his teaching, pastoring, to minister ourselves. And when I think back of the two parishes over which I was rector, my greatest delight was to seeing people doing things for Jesus. No, for the church, that it might be built up. Now, you might be thinking, now what's this got to do with new churches for new communities? Well, I think it's got a lot to do with that. For some years, the Mission Property Committee, of part of the Diocese of Sydney, has been busily buying blocks of land in the growth areas on the fringe of city, and, and that of Sydney, and they they've been do, using the levy that you pay uh, on your income towards that end. It's gone into a pool and it's bought strategically identified parcels of land in the growth corridor from Leppington in the southwest, west of Campbelltown, up to Riverston in the northwest. You know, by the year 2036, it is anticipated that there will be a further one million people living in that area in that growth corridor. But I want to say to you that what led Archbishop Glenn Davies in in 2015 to establish new churches for new communities, to raise funds to provide fledgling congregations with a dual-purpose facility, a building designed to be used for outreach ministry... Sunday schools, ESL, parenting groups, anything that could connect them with the community that they were growing in. And at the same time, a facility designed for other times to be their home, their church for them. What led him was his conviction that he was not just talking about bricks and mortar, he was actually talking about forming an organisation whose end product would be to play its part in equipping the people of God for their ministry. And that's really what it's about. But let me say that for these new congregations in these new communities, the work of their ministry is going to be pretty challenging the sheer scope of the growth of the population in that corridor says it all. Stanhope Gardens. Praise God, we've actually started to build. The bulldozers are already there now, digging up the soil, and the work has begun. And the people of Stanhope Gardens congregation who have been renting a room in a community leisure centre, which, by the way, closes at Christmas and Easter. Imagine that. So what do they do at Christmas and Easter? Oh, they pitch a tent 
on the land that we're now talking about. They can't have morning tea. Imagine an Anglican church surviving without coffee. <laughs> Why? Oh, because in the community leisure centre, there's a coffee shop. Can't take away their trade. Well, they're excited that they can actually see it now happening, and I'm excited because I've had this job for four years and now we are starting to make ground. But do you know that when Stanhope Gardens, the area, is fully occupied, the population will be about 50,000. Leppington, hopefully construction will begin in May next year. Leppington, by the time that area is fully populated, there will be a population of around 70 to 80,000. Marsden Park, about 50-plus thousand people will be living there. Riverston, about 60,000. And in each of the four of them to this day, each of them, well, in the first three, Leppington, Stanhope and Marsden Park, approximately 40% of the, of the population of the community will be under the age of 25, 40% under the age of 25. But wait for it, Riverston, it's anticipated when Riverston has been fully broken up and sold off and houses are built, 70% of the community's population will have been born in Sri Lanka and India. Now, I may have said it the last time I was here at St Martin's, that in effect, we're talking about a mission field just over our back fence here in Sydney. I think it's hard for us in Sydney's upper North Shore to comprehend numbers like that. According to the last census in 2016, the population of Kalara was around 10,500, of which 53.7% were born in Australia. South Taramara, where Jenny and I go to church, according to the census of 2016, had a population of 3,000 people, of whom 67.8% were born in Australia. But do you know that in Leppington, every three to four months, 3,000 people are moving into the area? Population of South Taramara is coming every three to four months to that area. But I want to say that the role of the church planter in each of those areas is the same as your rector's role, to help the people of God to exercise the ministries that he, in his grace, has given them. Same job, same job description. The role of NCNC and other organisations like the Mission Property Committee engaged in this work of church growth is to provide these new congregations with a home base from which and in which they can fulfil their ministry. And friends, I, I want to say to you that 
a number of the members of St Martin's congregation are amongst those who give financial and prayer support. And to them, I want to say sincerely thank you. And your rector, let me say too, is a source of great encouragement to us. And again, I'm most grateful for that because one of the things that irks me is that when I sent out an email on the Archbishop's behalf to parishes in the diocese, this great gospel-driven evangelical diocese of Sydney, within 10 minutes of sending the email, I get two replies from rectors of prominent parishes saying, not interested. Well, we haven't been able to build anything until now. And we have raised 4.6 million. This week, I'm going to part with 2.5 million of that for Stanhope Gardens. And with other expenses aside, I think we'll have about 1.1 million towards the next project, which is Leppington, due to start, as I say, in May next year. And so between now and May next year, we need to, to raise about another $1.4 million across the diocese. But it can be done in little pieces as well as big pieces. I've said before, 100 parishes giving $5,000 over a year will give us half a million dollars. You know, it's a big step in the right direction for us. At the back of the church, now I think you've got given as you came in, uh, this brochure produced cost-effectively in-house and it tells some of the things that I've just said. But should you want to join uh, with the Archbishop and the rest of the NCN team in this exciting but somewhat daunting venture, then read it. And look at our website, ncnc.org.au. Contact me if you want to know more or if you've got questions. But as I close, I want to share this with you, and I believe it. I actually believe it. This is not sales talk. I see prayer supporters and financial donors as genuine partners in this cause of equipping the saints for the work of their ministry. Actually, they're investors. They're investors in growing the kingdom of God and playing their part in helping equip who are really their brothers and sisters in Christ for the work of their ministry. The Archbishop of Sydney's New Churches for New Communities is not just about bricks and mortar. It's about men and women and children being drawn by the Spirit of God into, into the fellowship of his family. And that partly because of the sacrificial generosity of Anglicans across the diocese. Anglicans who reflect, maybe, on the inheritance given to them by those who have gone before them in their parish. You see, there was a time at Kalara when a group of Christians called Anglicans decided they want to build a church here. You didn't build it. 
You sit in it and enjoy the benefits of it and it's a great facility. But it came because of the generosity of generations before you. I walked around deliberately and looked at the plaques and I saw the plaque of, of a couple who had been foundation members of this congregation. Well, I'm simply saying that God calls us to share one another's burdens and to so fulfil the law of Christ. And I conclude with one last poem recorded by John Stott in the book One People and he doesn't know who wrote it. But it says, To love the worlds, to me, no chore. My big problem's the man next door. So remember what Paul says. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip God's people for the work of service so that the body of Christ might be built up and made mature. That's the challenge that faces us across the whole diocese. Sarah asked me what children we had and I always remember when the kids were little and they were going off to a party in the house of one of their friends or being invited there to stay overnight, don't forget to say, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me.